So go ahead and turn there now, Acts chapter 5. Have you guys noticed uh, that we're like a Bible reading culture in Chi Alpha? Yep. Have you noticed yet that we're a note-taking culture? Yeah. We are like always trying to write stuff down. Uh, It just like helps with remembering and learning. And um, I would like to encourage you that if you aren't taking notes yet, please get a notebook. I think this will really bless you. Yeah, just do it. It's going to be worth it. Um, A little bit about me. Every time I've shared up here, I've mentioned that I'm married to Cassidy, and uh, we've got kids now, but did you know that Cassidy and I started dating right here at Central? (coughs) Yep, we were students in Chi Alpha, and uh, we dated for a while, and then we did this crazy thing called pre-engagement counseling. Yes, Uh, that's for like the crazy slash smart people who want to know whether it might be an objectively wise or unwise decision to make this lifelong commitment of marriage to that person. Um, Has anyone here done pre-engagement counseling? Yep, so many hands. Wow. Yep. We got to do our pre-engagement counseling with the wins, Tony and Melissa, which was awesome. Uh, One of the main things that I remember focusing on in pre-E was how to have healthy conflict. Yep, and one of the biggest keys to healthy conflict um, and just like relational health in general is good communication. I'm sure you've never heard that before. Yep. So, uh, so Cassidy and I worked really hard to have good communication and healthy conflict while we were dating and engaged. And by the time we got married, we were pros. Uh, but then we actually got married. <laughs> and uh, quickly came to realize that dating conflict was like little league and, and marriage conflict was like the big leagues. Um, when we were dating, we may have had conflict over like one of us having to miss date night. Pretty low stakes. In marriage, we were having conflict over slightly bigger things, like where we were going to live, or whose family we were going to do Christmas with, or what chores belonged to who. Uh, but we worked really hard at it, and we once again became masters of communication. Until we bought a house, and started having to do house projects together. Yikes. Um, let me tell you, it was like we hit the reset button again. We were like no, ma- long, no longer masters. We were just like back to novice. Um, back in 2020, we were living in the Spokane area, and we were really like fixing up our house a ton. Uh, we were doing a ton of house projects. And that summer, we were really trying to get our home ready to host Cassidy's family for a staycation at our place. Cassidy was pregnant at the time with Matthew, Uh, So her family decided to bless us, but not making her travel all the way across the state. They came to us from Vancouver. And so, you know, guys, this is just like a recipe for um, a perfect opportunity to practice good communication skills and healthy conflict. Pregnant wife, live house projects, peak heat of summer, eight in-laws coming to stay at our house. (laughs) But it's okay, because we're masters in communication, (laughs) Um, I remember we were trying to finish up the projects in our unfinished basement, specifically the bathroom. We thought it would be nice to have two working toilets for the 10 total people that were going to be residing at our house that week. And uh, I can remember carrying the toilet into the bathroom. This is like the day before. We're procrastinators. What can we say? Carrying the toilet into the bathroom to install it. And I carefully placed it down on top of the pipe in the floor, only to find that we had framed the wall incorrectly, and it was impossible to connect the toilet to the pipe. 
So this is a picture of it. That's the dumb wall that we framed wrong. That's, that's where the toilet ended up. We had to make this stupid indent just so that it could rest in there. And then anyway, there it is. Okay, I'm still a little bit frustrated about it. It's okay. <laughs> yep. Long story short, we, uh, we definitely had some communicating to do because in the end, we only had one toilet for the 10 people. Cassidy's pregnant, emotions running high. We're masters of communication. It's all good. <laughs> yep. Then a few days into the staycation, the upstairs toilet got clogged. Yeah, it's just moments like this when um, you just feel so happy that you own your own house. Yep, guys, I, uh, I wish I could tell you that Cassidy and I were really nice to each other that particular week. But strangely, the more hard things that happened, uh, the more underlying conflict was kind of created and the less we were drawn to communicate about it well with each other. This is just uh, basic relationship wisdom for me. When things start irking you about your significant other or a close friend and tension is growing inside, fight with all of your might against the tendency to under-communicate. You just need to find a way to maintain normal communication, maybe even over-communicate. So there you go. You're welcome for that. Guys, that's our message for tonight. Worship team, you can start coming up. (laughs) Just kidding. We need to read the Bible. Okay. I said we were a Bible-reading culture. Because it's, okay, it's pretty easy to communicate <clears throat> when everything is going well. But hard times equal a need for in- increased communication. Has anyone ever had conflict with someone that they didn't know about? Like it was all inside your head? Yes. Um, I've noticed that uh, when I have this, when I have all these opinions and thoughts about another person and this conflict that they don't know about, um, I start to feel really cynical of the other person. It's really weird. Like, I, I start making up stories about them. Um, you know, like, Cassidy is just so selfish. She's not even going to help me do the dishes. She's just going to sit there s- chatting with her sister on the couch. Cassidy hasn't heard this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I'll also notice that I, I start to feel disillusioned with the other person. Like, ugh, I thought I knew her. I thought she had a servant heart, but I I guess I missed the fact that she is just a lazy slob. Okay, hey, that's not true. That's not true about Cassidy. Um, It sounds ridiculous, but in the moment with this unresolved conflict that I haven't told her about, I feel cynical and disillusioned about our relationship. Can anyone anyone relate to this? Yeah? You just kind of get weird. So um, there's a crazy cure to this, and I've already said it. Stay in communication. I know that if I can just humble myself and talk to Cassidy, I will remember uh, the wonderful person that she is. Um, The negative feelings will start to fade. It'll be fine. Simply put, communication brings clarity. Communication brings clarity. If you're taking notes, you could write that down. Yep, we even got on a slide for you. When I communicate with Cassidy or whomever I have beef with, I can remember that they are only a person, and so am I, and the disillusionment and the cynicism fades away. This is fundamental life advice, guys. It's, it is worth it to learn to communicate. It'll get you through hard times. And, you know, in our 
passage from the Bible tonight, um, we're going to read about some people who went through some really hard times. They were part of the early church, um, and we're going to be observing their mode of operation. So let's go ahead and pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to you to hear from your word. Uh, we pray that you teach us um, what your intention is for us as your church. Uh, would you teach us about communicating? <clears throat> would you bring us into closer, deeper relationship with you, God? Would you um, change us tonight, change our perspectives? Um, thanks for what you want to do. Amen. All right, guys. We're back in the book of Acts, as I mentioned. How are you guys liking our series so far? It's pretty killer. Yep. Uh, we made it through the first four-ish chapters of Acts. Um, we saw the disciples in their final days with Jesus while he was on earth. We got to hear about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, we've heard about the, the ways that the disciples lived out their ordinary lives with an extraordinary perspective from what the Holy Spirit wanted to do through them. And last week we heard from Tim about the, how the early Christians were taking on the responsibility of meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the people. They were like living out the original intent for the Jerusalem temple. It's pretty incredible to get to read about the first group of Christians that in the world. I don't know if you guys realize that, but this is one of the first churches anywhere, except for this, except for this one that was mentioned in the book of Acts right now. This is the first one. They didn't have a building. They just hung out in the temple courts. It would just be like hanging out in the cirque. That was the closest thing they had to church back then. So we're going to be reading, <clears throat> like I said, starting in chapter 5 today. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So Tim actually pointed to this paragraph um, to us last week. To summarize, things seem to be going pretty great for the apostles and the early Christians. There's like miracles happening, lots of people coming to faith in Jesus, um, and the apostles, which by the way is a way of referring to the OG 12 disciples of Jesus minus Judas plus Matthias, um, and the, the apostles are really well-respected community members. So let's keep reading to hear what happens next. <clears throat> Starting in verse 17, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Uh-oh. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, oh, sorry, opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. <clears throat> Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together for the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, 
Uh, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Guys, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious, and one of them put to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these guys alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them to not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. What exciting times to be alive. This story kind of almost feels like a scene out of a movie to me. We've got the apostles getting arrested and then supernaturally released from prison. And then instead of running for their lives, they just like go back to doing what got them arrested in the first place. Then they get arrested again, and Peter's like, we must obey God rather than human beings, which was a bold move because the people were like ready to, almost about ready to kill them. And it kind of makes you wonder, what was Peter's thought process here? What was his perspective? Was he scared or was he being really impulsive? Was he genuinely convinced it was all going to work itself out and he could say whatever he wanted? Or is he just so filled with conviction about the truth of Jesus that literally nothing else mattered? Regardless of his reasons, it takes guts. At this point in the story, Gamaliel, who's top dog Pharisee, settles the team down with just like some straight logic. He says, why don't you just let them do their thing? If it turns out that they're not legit, they'll fizzle out. But on the other hand, if they actually are on God's mission, good luck stopping that. And then the Sanhedrin is like, fair enough, but we're still going to beat them, which they do. Um, And what is the apostles' response to getting beaten? 
It says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the sake of the name. Did you hear that? The apostles believed that it was like one of the best things that could happen to them, that they would be identified with Jesus through suffering like he did. Friends, this is the attitude that resulted in the rapid spreading of the church. It is because of this mindset, the true radical abandonment of life itself, that caused the church to expand over the next several centuries. We have to recognize that you and I are here today, worshiping Jesus, the Savior and the King of the world, because these early believers did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death, Revelation 12, 11. Now, if the story ended right there, it actually kind of feels like it wraps up, like they all lived happily ever after. It's kind of how it ends. Uh, but the story of Acts obviously doesn't. <clears throat> so let's look forward. We're going to look forward to a short time later on. The church has continued to expand, and we're going to be introduced to a man named Stephen. Uh, turn with me to chapter 6, starting in verse 8. So Acts 6, verse 8 says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Okay, side note. If you want a good example of what unhealthy conflict and a lack of communication looks like, this is a good one. So, continuing. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, pause here. At this moment, it kind of feels like we're getting a bit of a repeat from earlier. Except for earlier, it was the apostles who were getting interrogated. Uh, this is sort of building up some expectations for how things will go, right? We got the religious folks who put, uh, who pull in a Jesus follower. They refuse to disobey God, and they challenge the religious leader to their face, and then they all go home. As the story continues here, Stephen proceeds to dive deep into the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, tracing the story of the Bible through Jacob, Joseph, and finally to Moses. He obviously took discipleship class. The story concludes at the end of chapter 7, so we're going to turn there, the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8, and we'll be picking up right at the end of Stephen's gospel. And when I say Stephen's gospel, I just mean that he's, he's finished explaining how Jesus is the Messiah, the promised hope of the Old Testament, who will bring Israel back into a relationship with their God. That's what he's talking about. Starting in verse 54, chapter 7, verse 54, it says... When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. 
you got to be pretty angry to gnash your teeth. Uh, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Paul approved of their killing him. Excuse me, Saul. Spoiler. On that, (laughs) continuing, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. We'll conclude our reading for tonight right there. The faith of this man, Stephen, puts us to shame. Yeah, I mean, what gives someone the ability to pray for the people who are actively attacking them? How do you pray for someone to be forgiven literally as they are taking your life? I'd suggest that you have to be pretty close to Jesus because those are very similar words to what he spoke when he was being crucified. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that it is easy to be a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I hope you recognize that following Jesus is costly. Chances are, none of us are going to experience what Stephen did here. But life can be really, really hard. The Bible never denies that fact. Instead, it actually constantly affirms that life is hard. Jesus says flat out that we will have trouble in this life. Although it's very unlikely that anyone will try to kill you, for your belief in Jesus, there probably will be people in your life who disagree with you on your beliefs. And that can be hard to grapple with sometimes. Even just the fact that there are like smart people out there who would seek to convince you that God isn't real, that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. I'll tell you from personal experience, when everything is going great in my life, those people are easy to ignore. It's easy to hear someone say they don't believe in God and then not be affected. But what about when life is really tough? I will admit that there is actually plenty of times that I've doubted God. I've doubted his goodness. I've doubted his involvement, his existence. Do you remember the advice that I started off this evening with? When life gets hard, communication should increase. I'm going to go ahead and shortcut centuries of theological discussion and say that prayer, very simply, can be defined as communication with God. Prayer is communication with God. A brief uh, BibleGateway.com keyword search will show you that the word pray occurs more in the book of Acts than in any other book in the entire Bible, except for Psalms. It's tied with Psalms, which is like 150 chapters long. Guys, the early church was devoted to prayer. 
here's a list of all the places that it mentions the disciples of Jesus praying so far in the book of Acts that we've read. Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. 1.24, then they prayed. 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer. 3.1, one day Peter and John went up to the temple at the time of prayer. 4.24, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 6.4, we will give our attention to prayer. 6.6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. 7.59, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. Now, we could spend the entire year talking about prayer. Um, for our purposes tonight, do you guys remember my story about the importance of communication? Should I remember back to my story? Clogged toilet, pregnant wife, 10 people under our roof. I can feel my cortisol rising a little bit. Um, I said that when things get hard, communication needs to stay consistent or maybe even increase. And what, what happens if it doesn't? When we stop communicating, we become disillusioned and cynical. Let me tell you, it is hard to keep a level head when you feel disillusioned and cynical. You think that the Christians in Acts that we just read about had a right to feel disillusioned or cynical. I mean, I, I feel like I would wonder whose side God is really on at that point. Like, he opened the prison doors and saved the apostles' lives. Why did he let Stephen die? Why did he allow people to get thrown in prison and killed for their belief? Why did he allow people no choice but to flee their homes and run for the hills? It's just not fair. The last verse that we read says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. How does that happen? How do you grapple with both the goodness of the gospel and the difficulties of life? I think that the secret lies in exactly what we see Stephen doing the moment before his death. He talked to Jesus. This man was devoted to prayer. These early believers were devoted to prayer, and it not only preserved their identities in Jesus, it also resulted in a movement that undeniably rerouted human history forever. We know Jesus today because these fearless believers founded in themselves to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed, not my will but yours. How do you respond to hardship? How do you respond to hardship? Have you ever felt like your life is at risk? I think I have. I typically do not respond to this level-headedly. I don't expect myself to actually be able to immediately respond with grace and clarity in the moment. But I'll repeat what I said earlier. Communication brings clarity. Communication brings clarity. When we stay in communication with God, we receive clarity about our actual state of being. We receive clarity about our true identity. We're safe to remember who God is and we're reminded that we don't see the whole picture. Did you know that you don't have to be nice to God in your prayers? Did you know that he can handle your honesty? I'm not telling you to put on a happy face for him and say, you know, I just, I know your plan is best, God. I found myself praying prayers like, what are you doing? You have no idea what you're doing. Where are you? 
Why are you letting this happen to me? And those are the pretty PG-rated versions of my prayers. I just believe that he can handle my honesty. I actually believe this because the Bible is full of prayers like this. There's a book, there's an entire book of the Bible about a man named Job who's just wrestling with the calamity that has taken over his life and how a good God could let that happen. Psalm 44 is one of my favorite psalms because it is a brutally honest prayer that shows the feelings of the people of Israel at that time. It starts off by saying, hey, you know, we've, God, we've heard about you from our ancestors. There's plenty of stories that talk about how kind you are. Uh, but then in verse 9, it takes a turn and it says, but now you've rejected and humbled us. And then later on, the psalmist says, I live in disgrace all day long. My face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who's bent on revenge. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned, turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sleep, sheep to be slaughtered. Wake up, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. And the psalm ends with barely any emotional resolution. Guys, we believe that the Bible is a revelation of God's character. What does it say about him that he allowed this psalm to be put in his book? I believe that God wants an authentic relationship. This psalm gave me the permission to be fully honest with God in my prayers. It's actually saved my faith to pray the words, Jesus, I'm struggling to believe in you right now. <clears throat> I believe that my faith has actually been made stronger because God doesn't force me to into fake smiles and denial. Through this kind of prayer, my relationship with Jesus becomes more real. On the flip side, uh, without communicating to God how I really feel, disillusionment and cynicism will creep in and erode my trust in him. Do you see how that works? I already said, you know, few of us are going to experience what Stephen did in this story. But we still have hardships in our lives. How do you respond to hardship in your life, in your classes, with friends, family? How do you respond when you're unsure about your money situation? How do you respond when you're struggling really hard in class and you feel like your future is at risk? How do you respond when someone harms you or a close friend or a family member? These are general questions that anyone could answer, Christian or otherwise. Here's another question. How do you respond when following Jesus becomes more inconvenient than convenient? How do you respond when following Jesus becomes more inconvenient than convenient? Are you willing to talk to him about it? We're going to start to conclude, so I actually will invite the worship team to come up for reals. Um, I think that a lot of the time we aren't willing to communicate with people because we don't trust them. But ironically, the less communication happens, the less trust is able to be built. So communication both demonstrates and builds trust. Communication both demonstrates and builds trust. A life of prayer 
is the demonstration of a life of trust in God. Trust that, our pers- that his perspective is better than ours. Trust that whatever horrible thing is happening to you is something that God has allowed to happen, but it doesn't mean that he's not with you. Trust that he can take your honest, unfiltered thoughts and feelings. Prayer demonstrates to God that we trust him. I want us to take a few moments tonight to think about uh, what our rhythms of prayer look like. When do you find yourself talking with God? Perhaps for some of us, it's just on Tuesday nights or at core. Maybe you find yourself praying only when things are going really well or only when things are really tough. When we look at the times that the early Christians prayed throughout the book of Acts, we see them praying in response to both the good and the bad things, as well as just following the ordinary daily rhythms of praying during completely ordinary life. When it's limited to only one of these times of prayer, prayer becomes an action. But what would it mean for us to adopt a mindset of prayer? And I really don't actually want us to each create a bunch of rules or like a checklist for how many times I pray today. Um, What I want us to consider is what relational foundation we're building with our God that will bring clarity and stability and purpose to our lives in easy times and confusing times and completely sucky times. How are you building a relational foundation with God through a life of continuous prayer? How are you building a relational foundation with God through a life of continuous prayer? And I think I need to pray to close. Lord God, um, would you speak to us now? Would you help us to speak to you? God, I pray that if there's um, anyone here that is maybe like just recognized, I've been holding something back and I, I don't feel like I can communicate this with you. God, would you open the lines of communication. Would you help us to adopt a, um, a, a more comfortable posture with you? Would you help us to believe that we have the confidence to come into your throne room and talk to you? God, I pray that this would truly affect our lives, that this would change, that this would change us. Thank you, God.